When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Rebecca Miller, the writer and director of Maggie's Plan, and you're listening to Film Spotting. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. There was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people to see if we could become something more. So when they needed us, we could fight the battles that they never could. You know, it sounds so familiar. That was the original film spotting mission before we scrapped it and decided to just talk about movies instead. You know, I'm not ruling out that film spotting might get absorbed into the Marvel Cinematic Universe at some point. It could happen. That's a bit of the trailer for Avengers Infinity War coming to theaters in May and the betting person's likely pick for box office champ of the 2018 movie year. But here on Film Spotting, Josh, we are not too concerned with box office. This week on the show, our 2018 movie preview and some thoughts on Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread, which is expanding into wider release this weekend. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Hopefully six hours over the past three shows talking about the best films of 2017 has been enough for you. Are you sure? We can move on. I think that last show was six hours on its own. (laughs) Might have been. This week, we move boldly into 2018 with our preview of the new year in movies. As always, our preview will take the form of our top five questions about the new movie year. We do also have a review of a 2017 movie that most people are finally getting to see in 2018, Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread. As of last weekend, it was still playing playing in under 100 theaters, but it is expanding, so hopefully more people will have a chance to see it. We are finally ready to talk about that film after two viewings. It takes at least two viewings of any PTA film, I think, to really speak with any coherency whatsoever. I'm going to try this week. I just feel like a professional. I mean, really, this is what every movie deserves is at least two viewings before a quote-unquote review. I don't know if it'll be reflected in our thoughts, but at least we've done the work. Every movie? You're sticking with that? Oh, yeah. You're so generous. That review plus Massacre Theater. Circus Musical. Okay. And more later in the show. But first, it is our 2018 movie preview, our questions about the upcoming movie year, basically our trick to try to finagle in 27 different movie titles into a top five. At least that's how I approach it. And... We're going to do that as well by talking about the movies that we're omitting. We have some films that we are excluding for a variety of reasons. The first two, Josh, because they were part of our recent poll question over at filmspotting.net. We gave you a most anticipated films of 2018 deathmatch, two films that are part of larger franchises, larger series, but we have characters going out on their own. Your options were Black Panther, co-written and directed by Ryan Coogler, who gave us Fruitvale Station and Creed, or Solo, a Star Wars story, directed by Ron Howard, first by Lord and Miller. Josh, how did that poll come out? Which of those two films are film spotting listeners most excited to see? 
Black Panther takes down Solo, and it wasn't even really close. 66% of the vote went to Black Panther. Surprised at all, Josh, at how those results came out? I thought it might have been a little closer, yeah. but I, I I feel like there is enthusiasm and curiosity over Black Panther and maybe some curiosity over Solo, but also... Are we starting to get a little Star Wars fatigue? Hmm. I don't know. Maybe. Well, let's hear from some of the voters. Kevin wrote in, I have to vote for Solo here because I'm utterly fatigued by superhero movies. So well, the opposite. It does go the other way, too. <laughs> While I enjoyed Wonder Woman immensely, the prospect of sitting through another origin story of another superhero character who will eventually battle and defeat another supervillain just doesn't appeal to me. I have high hopes for Solo. I thought Rogue One was the best Star Wars film since the original trilogy. Wow. Let's hope Solo is as creative and refreshing as Rogue One was. Here's Matt Mitchell from Libertyville, Illinois. There's every logical reason to vote for Black Panther in this poll. More interesting director, better cast, less troubled production, greater potential for diverse voices to be heard, etc., etc., etc. Screw the logic and search your feelings. I would rather see a Star Wars film over another MCU film any day. And while I'm in the minority, I know I'm not alone. Do not underestimate the power of a Lawrence Kasdan Star Wars okay. script. So some dissenters here with the majority voters, but we're going to get to some of the Black Panther fans as we hear from Henrik Hansen in Yalding, Kent, UK. Solo is, say it with me, a Star Wars prequel. And as much as I know it will be fun to see the Millennium Falcon make the Kessel Run and under 12 parsecs, etc., it just feels like Solo will be doodling in the margins, filling in the backstory. In contrast, Black Panther looks fresh and new and vibrant. One more here from Gavin. He's in Chicago. While I'm not really looking forward to either of these movies, I'll throw in a vote for Black Panther for that Kendrick Lamar curated soundtrack alone. Would have been a different story if Phil Lord and Chris Miller had managed to get their vision past the Disney party poopers, but they got Edgar righted. That's a verb now. And I think that will yet again be worse off for it. Okay, so we are both curious about Solo and Black Panther. We have left them off of our top five list, our top five questions. They are ineligible. A couple other titles ineligible. One, Isle of Dogs, the Wes Anderson film. That just seems to us one of the most obvious choices for this list. And usually we try to leave off the most obvious picks. Annihilation, the upcoming film. It has a February 23rd release date. Comes from Alex Garland, who gave us one of our favorite films of a couple of years ago, Ex Machina, as writer and director there. He is writer and director here. Natalie Portman, Oscar Isaac is back. Tessa Thompson and Jennifer Jason Lee also star. The reason we're ruling it out is not only is it kind of obvious that we would be excited about this movie, but we had it on our 2017 movie preview. This, this inevitably always happens, doesn't it? It does. And to prove your point, right now you've named the number one and two most anticipated films of this year for me. Okay. So those are generally the ones that I do try to set aside when making my questions list. That makes sense. Before we get to our questions, I did want to go back to something I said on our last show when we were looking ahead to this episode. And I threw out there that there weren't really a lot of films I was seeing in just doing a little bit of research at that point by really established filmmakers, the kind of Wes Anderson's of the world. And I think that that's still true in as much as if you were checking off the list of the filmmakers who every time you see him, you know, with 100% certainty you're going to go, whether it's Nolan, Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, or Wes Anderson, the Coen brothers. We don't have a lot of those on this list, but that isn't to say we don't have a lot of really well-known acclaimed 
filmmakers that have films coming out. There were a lot of familiar big names as I did my prep. And so I wanted to acknowledge a few of those here. I don't think any of these are going to come up on our list. Spielberg, of course, Ready Player One is a big film I know a lot of people are interested in. Alfonso Cuaron has a new one out, Roma. Clint Eastwood's The 1517 to Paris. Spike Lee, Black Klansman, I'm really curious about with Adam Driver and Topher Grace. Verhoeven's got a new one, Blessed Virgin. De Palma's got a new one, Domino. Ebook from Olivier Asayas, and I love when he collaborates with Juliette Binoche. This is supposedly a comedy that takes place in Paris in the publishing world. Your guy, Robert Zemeckis, has a new one coming out, The Women of Marwen, Mike Lee, his film Peterloo, and The Man Who Killed Don Quixote from Terry Gilliam. It stars Adam Driver, Stellan Skarsgård, Jonathan Price, and Olga Kirilenko. It's fitting that Jonathan Price would be in it because you read the plot synopsis and advertising exec jumps back and forth in time between 21st century London and 17th century La Mancha, where Don Quixote mistakes him for Sancho Panza. And it sounds like a hybrid of Brazil a little bit mixed with the project that we all know Gilliam's been longing to make forever, the Don Quixote epic that we saw in the documentary that was about his failed efforts to make that film. So in some ways... I haven't read anything about it. This is his attempt to finally see that project to fruition. And one more I'll mention, everybody knows Asghar Farhadi, the great Iranian filmmaker whose work we really appreciated and discovered during our contemporary Iranian cinema marathon a few years back. He's got a new one with Penelope Cruz and Javier Bardem. It takes place in Buenos Aires, so a little bit out of his traditional element. All major filmmakers, I'll throw in just a couple more that could be included in that group. Steve McQueen with a film Widows, Claire Denis in Space. She's going to have one out called <laughs> High Life. And then Nuri Bilga Jalan has a new one this really? year. Alat Agatsi doesn't even have an English language title, but there it is. A filmmaker I know that we've dug into on this show Once before. Once a time in Anatolia. Yep. Michael Phillips uh, loves him quite a bit. So that also is one we'll be looking forward to this year, but not covering in our questions. That's true, more or less. Okay. You might have you might have stolen my thunder on just one of those titles, Josh, but that's fine. I'm ready to hear your questions. What's your number five? Can Shane Black's The Predator possibly <laughs> be as good as Predators? <laughs> this, wow. one, this one you know is just for our friend and colleague, Chris Clemmick. I could Clemmick. phrase that question correctly for you if you wanted me to, Josh. <laughs> oh, I'm sure I'll hear from Chris, who you can read at NPR and here on Pop Culture Happy Hour. He's a connoisseur of 80s and 90s action, including 1987's Arnold Schwarzenegger, sci-fi shoot-em-up, Predator. I am not a fan of Predator, much to Chris's frustration. There are only so many biceps I can take in a movie, Adam. However, <laughs> and you like your men meaty. <laughs> that's true. This is breaking wait, news. Wait, no, no. Tatum's oh, wait, a little I'm, too beefy. You're right. I'm the you're guy. The, come on. I, keep this straight. <laughs> I can't believe I'm mixing that up. <laughs> I do like 2010's Predators. It's come up at least once before on the show. Has Adrian Brody, Lawrence Fishburne, Topher Grace, Alice Braga. It's just, for me, it's a leaner, more clever, silly B-movie. It's a lot of fun, I think, as well. Why am I telling you all this? Okay. Why? <laughs> here's, here's why. Shane Black, 80s action screenwriter turned recent director of Iron Man 3 and The Nice Guys. He also had a bit part in The First Predator, mm-hmm. and I understand did some script work on it. He is now directing The Predator, which is set between Predator 2 and My Beloved Predators. Black's become something of a critical darling since his directorial debut, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. So I'm pretty sure this is going to be better received than Predators was by the establishment. Either way, The Predator is out August 3 
in preparation, you should all see Predators, too. <laughs> or the original Predator. You could go with either eh. one. Mm. All right. My number five question about the upcoming movie year is, why is the director of Weekend and 45 Years making a heartwarming movie about a horse? Good question. Thank I you. Saw, I saw this and just didn't know what to do with it. Well, that's what I did with it. The movie is called Lean on Pete. The horse is called Lean on Pete. This movie comes out A24, great distribution house. They are releasing it. March 20th is the date. The director is Andrew Haig, who gave us those two films, both reviewed very favorably here on the show. And this has a compelling cast. You've got Steve Buscemi, Chloe Sevigny, Steve Zahn also has a part. Charlie Plummer is the lead teen character. I'm not familiar with him, but he stars in All the Money in the World, which is out in theaters now and we haven't caught up with yet. He plays a character named Charlie in this film. The description says he's a teenager who gets a summer job working for a horse trainer and befriends the fading racehorse Lean on Pete. If you just read that description, you would really think this is going to be every conventional teen inspirational, uplifting movie, certainly involving an animal that we have all seen before. And so I'm dying to know what Andrew Haig as a filmmaker saw in this project, what drew him to it and what personal touch he is going to put on the movie. Now, from the 824 description, their plot synopsis, they do mention it is a deeply moving story about love, loneliness, family, and friendship. And that all, again, sounds pretty familiar, like any inspirational story, but that, that word loneliness really stuck out to me. I thought about 45 years. I love that film. It was in my top five of that year. Tom Courtney and Charlotte Rampling is this couple that have been together that long, are celebrating their 45th year wedding anniversary, and there is a lot of love at the core of their relationship. There are some touching elements to it, and then there is also this undercurrent of real pain, some of which does come to the surface because of some past events being dredged up. And if you do watch the trailer, it does seem to have that undercurrent of pain. It has that idea of exploring a character feeling forgotten and alienated in a way that we have seen portrayed successfully in other films by Andrew Haig. I don't know. I'm thinking out loud here, Josh, completely, but I wonder if it will almost be a goodwill hunting scenario where that's a film that in the hands of a different filmmaker could have felt like any kind of conventional story and Gus Van Zandt just brought enough of his his indie idiosyncrasy and his artistry to make that both a Gus Van Zandt film and a crowd-pleasing hit maybe Haig will be able to pull off something similar here Sure. And, and I like Goodwill Hunting, but let's let's look even higher. I mean, masterpieces have been made from this sort of material, the Black Stallion. So um, this obviously sounds like it's different in some ways, but I would not count Haig out either at this point. All right. My number four question, can Melissa McCarthy carry a dramatic feature? I don't think anyone doubts that McCarthy has dramatic chops. We've seen it in some of her television work and then here and there on the big screen a little bit. But in Can You Ever Forgive Me, she has uh, a lead role as Lee Evans, a real-life celebrity biographer who begins selling fake letters that are purportedly from famous people. There are other reasons beyond McCarthy to anticipate this. It's written by Nicole Hall of Center, one of my favorite filmmakers. Her last directorial effort was enough said. And it's directed by Mariel Heller, who made the 2015 Golden Brick nominee Diary of a Teenage Girl. Can You Ever Forgive Me is scheduled to release October 9. That puts it in the window for award season consideration. I would love 
to see Melissa McCarthy back in the Oscar mix. I think it's always going to be a more fun race if she's involved. So that's can you ever forgive me? Yeah, that's a great question. And it does certainly seem like a departure for McCarthy. My number four question is which female led heist octet ensemble will we most want to see get away with it? Ocean's Eight or Widows, the new film that is coming out by Steve McQueen. Ocean's Eight is set for a release on June 8th. Gary Ross, who gave us Pleasantville and the first Hunger Games movie, is the director. And yeah, it's a remake, essentially, or a re-envisioning of Ocean's Eleven with Sandra Bullock as Debbie Ocean, who is apparently Danny Ocean's estranged sister. And wouldn't you know it? I did not know this. Wouldn't you know it? I just found this out today. Oh. Yeah, I was looking at the fine print. It and suddenly they're dropped related. quite a bit in my estimation. Well, wouldn't you know it? She has to gather a crew to attempt to pull off this impossible heist. Instead of 10 other crew members, she only gets seven. And they're a formidable group. There is some real talent here, of course, starting with Kate Blanchett, who plays Debbie's close friend, Anne Hathaway, Mindy Kaling, Sarah Paulson, Rihanna, Helena Bonham Carter, and the rapper and entertainer Aquafina. So again, some real talent there. And I know it's going to be very easy for people to make comparisons to Ghostbusters, including because of the backlash that these women have faced, though I don't think it's anywhere on the level yet of what we saw the Ghostbusters cast have to deal with. You're telling me Ocean's Eleven fanboys aren't quite as idiotic. Yeah, it doesn't seem that way. But in Ghostbusters, those very funny, very talented women were unfortunately let down by a very bad film. This movie, I think, will almost certainly be better than Ghostbusters. The trailer, I'll have to admit, has me lukewarm at best. And part of it is I'm really skeptical about how much fun it's going to be watching Kate Blanchett play second fiddle, the Brad Pitt character, to Bullock's George Clooney. There's just something about that that dynamic there that that I'm worried about. Maybe it'll work, Josh. Yeah, I, I, I think it will work. I mean, if you're thinking of it in terms of who's the better actress, of course well, that's, that's going to throw I'm you off. About it. But you're also in an Ocean's Eleven movie, and this mm-hmm. thing doesn't run on acting. It runs on charm, or at least it should, which okay. Kate Blanchett has in spades as well. But so did Pitt and Clooney. Mm-hmm. I can actually see, you know, Bullock, when I heard about this, I was really interested. I think Bullock's a perfect match for that Clooney persona and, and can do that. She basically does that really well. On I'm not her feeling own. it from the trailer. No, but it's just that's a where trailer. I was going. Okay. I did watch the trailer and, and what people forget is what Soderbergh brought to Ocean's mm-hmm. 11. Yes, it was a big bag of movie stars doing movie star stuff beautifully, but it also looked like, and it moved like a movie star. Right. Mm-hmm. And Gary Ross, who's some films I like quite a bit first hunger games. I know a lot of people think his direction is the weak point, but I thought he handled that well in other films. I don't know if he's going to be able to do the same thing as Soderbergh can with this sort of material. No, probably not. And that's why this is also an unfair comparison because I'm putting it up against widows, which is scheduled yeah, to come I mean, out November 16th. This is like a Steve McQueen, choice here. very different film because a little it's bit. also, I think, supposed to be not just a heist movie, but a drama. It's definitely yeah. not a light comedy the way Ocean's 8 is. But not only is McQueen directing, who did 12 Years a Slave, and still my favorite film with his, actually his debut, Hunger, but he's teamed here with Gillian Flynn, who wrote Gone Girl, which was one of my favorite movies, its release year. And it's set here in Chicago. The description says that it's about four women with nothing in common except a debt left behind by their dead husbands, criminal activities take fate into their own hands and conspire to forge a future on their own terms. So we've got 
four widows. We've got four husbands. The widows are obviously really at the center of this. And those women are Viola Davis, the great Viola Davis, Elizabeth Debicki, who was my favorite part, frankly, of Baz Luhrmann's The Great Gatsby. She's been in Valerian and she showed up in Guardians 2. We'll be back in Guardians 3, but we really probably haven't seen the best of Elizabeth Debicki yet. So I'm hoping this is a really good character for her. Michelle Rodriguez also stars and Cynthia Erivo, who I'm not familiar with some of her movie work to this point, but she won the 2016 Tony on Broadway for The Color Purple. We then have the four husbands, Liam Neeson, John Bernthal, and I don't know how the rest of the cast exactly shakes out, but here's some of the other actors in the ensemble, Josh. Daniel Kaluuya from Get Out, Colin Farrell, Robert Duvall, Garrett Dillahunt, and Andre Holland, who was so good in Moonlight. Add into the mix Jackie Weaver and Carrie Coon. That is a lot of talent, and I'm curious to see what McQueen will do with a genre film. Again, it's a drama, but there is a heist thriller aspect to it. As I said, he's never really made a genre film. I think you would obviously be mistaken if you just called Hunger a prison movie or called 12 Years a Slave a slavery movie. And this will probably be something different than the typical heist film we are used to. And that pairing with Gillian Flynn, I remember saying during a review when I walked out of Gone Girl, and of course, Fincher's direction was a huge, huge part of this, but walking out and feeling like you'd kind of entered a different world temporarily because I just gotten lost in, I guess, that illusory world that is created. And McQueen is nothing but a very censored filmmaker and I think that pairing could be fruitful. Widows, my number five most anticipated movie of this year overall. So yeah, you're on the right track there. That that cast, I mean, way more talent than Ocean's Eight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, not just yeah, in number, I agree. but in names too. So that should be really something. All right. My number three question, will David Gordon Green's Halloween finally force us to do a Halloween sacred cow? <laughs> we talk about it I'm almost ready. every year. Should we give a sacred cow review to John Carpenter's Halloween? It's a movie that you, Adam, and most critics revere. One I was mixed on when I watched it for the first time, probably about 10 years ago. I think I watched it in advance of Rob Zombie's Halloween remake, which I liked even less, and which spawned... I'm sure, just like Predators 2, you were going to I was going to go for superior. that one. Hey, some people really like that one, too. Uh, and that one actually did spawn its own sequel. The franchise is returning this year, and yes, you heard me right, under the directorial guidance of David Gordon Green. I guess, you know, we shouldn't really be surprised given how eclectic his career has been up until this point. I mean, he did break out with the atmospheric indies, George Washington and all the real girls, but then we've gotten everything from Pineapple Express to this year's, it was an inspirational drama, Stronger, right, with Jake Gyllenhaal. I didn't see it. No. Last year's, I should say, right. 2017. But they I know got, the people for who the saw part, it. Really yes, good reviews. People did like it. So I don't necessarily need another Halloween. This one takes place 40 years after the original. It also features the return of Jamie Lee Curtis. But a Halloween installment from David Gordon Green? Okay, you've got me interested. <laughs> What I do need is a good reason to reconsider John Carpenter's original. I've been meaning to do that with a bunch of Carpenter's stuff in general. This might be the reason. Well, that is such a perfect transition into my number three for a variety of reasons, including Halloween was part of, I think, the second marathon ever done in this show's history back in 2005, a horror movie marathon. I had seen Halloween, but I don't know if I'd actually ever seen it at that point. In one sitting. It was one of those films sure. that was just on all the time when I was a kid. I felt like I knew the whole thing and really got to sit down and appreciate it. I did appreciate it more than my co-host at the time, now producer Sam Van Halgren. Another movie from that marathon I liked way more than Sam Van Halgren was Dario Argento's 1977 horror masterpiece, 
Suspiria. So my number three question, Josh, is will film spotting producer Sam Van Hogren and other cinephiles actually appreciate Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria remake? And it's even more appropriate with your question about David Gordon Green, because a few years back, he was supposedly tied to a Suspiria remake. That's that never right. happened. Yeah, I forgot but now, about that. The guy who made one of the year's most acclaimed films, 2017's Call Me By Your Name, he has already shot. It's in the can. It really happened. Dario Argento Suspiria. It's a movie about an aspiring dancer, a young American who goes to a prestigious dance academy and, well, all hell breaks loose from there as the academy may just be run by a coven of witches. Now, I have not gone back to listen to that conversation, but I remember it being quite an entertaining one, and Sam couldn't dig up any of his notes. This was so old, Josh, that Sam wasn't even using electronic notes at the time. He was just scribbling <laughs> things notepad. on paper. So I would Surely have to listen to it. that's in the it. film spotting archive. You would think, someday. But I remember him heavily deriding this movie, saying at one point something like it was probably written by a 12-year-old. Oh, that's that's how much he disliked this movie. Now, while he was busy alienating horror aficionados who were <laughs> testing out our show, seeing if the water was safe. Not this one. I was there. I got it. I, I knew that the script and the story weren't really the allure of Suspiria. Speaking of sensory and Steve McQueen, that movie is really all about the trippy use of color and the music on the soundtrack by Goblin. Those really... I think clever for the most part and gruesome death sequences. Now, none of that worked for Sam. So what's going to convince him this time that this Suspiria is something he needs to make time for? The cast, at least a couple of the names, probably not going to help him. Jessica Harper, the star of the original, is back, though, just in a supporting role. And Chloe Grace Moretz, also one of the stars. I've never been a huge Chloe Grace Moretz fan, but Dakota Johnson, who... I, of course, appreciate from the Fifty Shades movie, the one I've seen. I, I'm assuming the one coming out this year is your number one question. No. I don't even know it's if she's not, in actually. it. I don't yeah. think she's. Oh, yeah. Is yeah, she still in it? it? Of she, course why she is. is she still doing these she's things? She's on board she's for the so whole trilogy. <laughs> but I stopped. I stopped Josh after the first one. I like Dakota Johnson, so that doesn't hurt anything for me. I don't know that Sam has had the pleasure of watching any of the Fifty Shades <laughs> movies. So, again, not really helping. But here's what I think will help Sam. Tilda Swinton showing up as the school headmaster. She's reteaming here with her bigger splash co-star, Dakota Johnson. They were both in that Guadagnino movie together. That's almost too perfect. Yeah, it is. And Radiohead's Tom York replacing Goblin doing the soundtrack. How about Guadagnino as the director? Sam really loved Call Me By Your Name more than either of us did, actually. And his approach to the film, his style, and his overall thematic approach even might be something that is more appealing to Sam and others than whatever Argento was interested in. I read a quote from him today where he said he wants it to be about the concept of motherhood and about the uncompromising force of motherhood. Okay. Having seen Suspiria, though it was 12 years ago, I'm not sure how that all fits in, but I'm ready to see what he does with it. And I think it was just last week when we were sharing our favorite scenes of the year, and I had an end scene or two from Call Me By Your Name as my number one. I talked about that film being a movie that I felt more than anything else. And I don't know if it was IndieWire, their most anticipated list, or Screen Crush, but someone writing an article about this Suspiria remake said that Guadagnino's goal was not to remake the movie, but to make an homage to how the original 
made him feel. Obviously, he's one of those directors who I think can pull that off with a movie, and I want to see whatever that personal vision is. I want to see how he does transfer it to the screen and to the audience. Guadagnino, a busy guy in 2018, another one set to come out from him, Rio, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Benedict Cumberbatch, and Michelle Williams, and that is intriguing as well. Yeah, I didn't know about that second one. So Suspiria, I have not seen it. Okay. I have listened to the Next Picture Show episode. One of my favorite episodes, they paired Suspiria with The Neon Demon, Mm -hmm. one of my favorite films of, well, I guess it'd be two years ago. Yeah, and that really was a perfect pairing. Oh, yeah. A really inspired one I meant to listen to, and I'm now going to have to go back and make sure I listen. That also would be good fodder. It would be kind of fun to revisit a marathon movie and a famous disagreement in the show's history and do it with a new co-host and see how that plays out. But you know I'm going to feel the burden to back up Sam on this. I know so. you are. <laughs> and disagree with me, and it's going to be a debacle all over again. We'll see what happens. All right, let's stick with horror, shall we? We've been on a good run here. And my number two question, which director of a recent horror breakout is most likely to take another big step forward in 2018? Okay. I'm thinking, of course, of The Babadook's Jennifer Kent, mm-hmm. and It Follows David Robert Mitchell. The Babadook was 2014, and It Follows came out in 2015. So Kent returns with The Nightingale, and this is set in 1825 Tasmania. Here's the IMDb plot description. A young convict woman seeking revenge for the murder of her family takes an aboriginal male outcast with her through the interior and gets much more than she bargained for. So murder familiar, yes, from the Babadook, but I don't know. Some of this other stuff, including the period setting, seems like a bit of a change for her. Mitchell is also changing gears. He has Under the Silver Lake, which is described as a neo-noir. It's about a man investigating a billionaire's death and a girl's kidnapping. The stars here are Andrew Garfield and Riley Keough. Lately, I've become more excited about hearing Riley Keough's name in things than Andrew Garfield, yeah, I think. I think I'm, I'm just, with you. You know, he's fine, just kind of a little lukewarm on him compared to some of the fun stuff she's been doing lately. Now, as I had The Babadook on my top 10 list, I'd probably go with Kent if I had to choose, but I am really eager for both of these. The Nightingale is opening in August, and Under the Silver Lake doesn't have a set date right now, but at one point, I know it was scheduled for 2017, so I'm hoping that means that'll certainly come out this year. My number two is, is this the year I finally discover who Claire Foy is? Oh, she's so good. See, I knew you could tell me because I know that you watch The Crown. And I think she's gone now. Well, that's because she's busy making films. Yeah, I think she's really, in a handful really of things. busy making films. She's got three that I'm aware of coming out this year, and I want to see all three of them, starting with Unsane, scheduled for March 23rd. It's about a young woman who is involuntarily committed to a mental institution where she is confronted by her greatest fear. The description says Juno Temple also stars. Okay, Steven Soderbergh. So I'm in. You know I'm in. Then you add... Soderbergh shot on iPhone in secret. And you know that I'm going to be sure to see this one on opening day. Then Claire Foy stars in First Man, the latest film from La La Land and Whiplash director Damien Chazelle. That's scheduled for October 12th. She plays the first wife of Neil Armstrong, who will be portrayed in the movie by Ryan Gosling. This is the true story of NASA's mission to try to land a man on the moon and obviously does focus on Neil Armstrong. So Chazelle, I'm going to be curious about anything that he makes. You had Gosling into it. You had space into it. Going back to my love of the right stuff as a kid and I'm a sucker for astronaut movies. And then just a week later, she is going to be starring as the new Elizabeth Salander 
In another Millennium movie, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series, this one is called The Girl in the Spider's Web. So Claire Foy is taking over for Numi Rapace in the original series of films and for Rooney Mara in the David Fincher-directed remake. It's yet another movie about her as a computer hacker who gets caught up in government corruption and cyber criminals. It doesn't really matter. I do generally like that Salander character and want to see what Claire Foy is going to bring to it because I have appreciated the other two Elizabeth Salanders we've had on screen. And how about Lakeith Stanfield? So good in Get Out and Donald Glover's TV series Atlanta. He plays an NSA security expert who is tracking Salander. It's also written by Stephen Knight, who wrote and directed one of my favorite movies of the past four or five years, starring Tom Hardy. So you put all three of those together and I'm going to come away with an opinion about Claire Foy, a pretty strong one, one way or another, having really never heard of her before now. We're going to have to delay it. Delay what? The announcement. Just for a few months. Why? Because of the baby. What baby? Mine. I'm expecting. Since when? 14 weeks. Yeah, it's hard to imagine her as Salander because she's so prim and proper, of course, as Queen Elizabeth on the crown. And she's really good there, but I think it's probably time for her to move on. It's just so many scenes of her fretting, looking outside a window. I think she can pull out of her hat. She's fantastic at them. But we found out, I think she's done after this season because I think they're jumping ahead 10 years. It was it was very hard to take, Adam. We were we didn't realize. You ever have this happen when you're streaming stuff that you didn't realize you're watching the last episode till it's over? And and we thought it was, it was just the huh. other night. We thought, oh, let's let's watch the next one. This is yeah. getting really good. And no, they're gone. I think there are a lot of people out there listening right now, nodding their heads slowly. I don't get to partake in enough streaming television. So yeah, it was no. the one. We got to have one that that we usually watch, and that was it. So now I think it's back to Veep. Well. I knew that you and Debbie were fans of The Crown, and that does seem like one now that we've gone through Mindhunter as fast as we did. It might be the next one, the next Netflix series that Sarah and I can actually both enjoy. So it's on the list. All right. My number one, You Stole My Thunder a little bit. The question is, can Damien Chazelle move us without music? So Guy and Madeline on a park bench, Whiplash, La La Land. All of these, the music was so crucial. And I, for one, I would just be happy if he kept making full-blown movie musicals. That's not the case, as you described with First Man. And there are a few other hesitations I have about this. It's from a script Chazelle didn't write, and it's also an entry in one of my least favorite genres, space or not, Adam. This is still a (laughs) biopic. I'm with you on the space. But the biopic does have me concerned. I am excited about the rest of the cast. You mentioned them, Claire Foy, Kyle Chandler, Jason Clark also in this. And Chazelle has certainly shown that you know, with the dramatic scenes in Whiplash in particular, I think that he's not just a music man. The guy can do a lot and do it really well. But I don't know. We have plenty of directors who can make prestige biopics. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many directors we have right now who could make La La Land. So we'll see. Certainly, I'm going to give it a shot. It'll be interesting to see what First Man ends up being. And as you mentioned, it opens October 12th. See, it's funny because... I would say biopics are maybe one of my favorite genres, and I don't enjoy them for the most part, but I'm always eager to see them. Hmm. And I'm not really sure why that is, but when I was a kid, this goes back to First Man and astronauts and space movies. After the right stuff, astronaut books, the stories of those 
guys, the Mercury 7, those are the first books I read mm. kind of as a third, fourth, fifth grader. I became obsessed with it. Yeah. And so I loved reading true stories, and I still enjoy them, and I'm still drawn to something like First Man about Neil Armstrong, even if, as I said, biopics typically have been letting me down of late. My number one movie question of 2018 is, which Rooney Mara slash Joaquin Phoenix movie will be the more transcendent spiritual experience? Mary Magdalene? Or don't worry, he won't get far on foot? Or is this the year of the Phoenix? Should we just call it now? Because in addition to those two movies, he also has You Were Never Really Here coming out. Let's start with the first two movies, though. Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot is directed by Gus Van Zant, and he stars in it along with Jonah Hill, Mara, and Jack Black. It's based on a memoir by John Callahan, who had a car accident at 21 and became paralyzed, and he turned to drawing for therapy. Now, as I said about Gus Van Zandt, he finds a way to take these stories that seem like they could be conventional on the surface and make them something more than that. Obviously, Phoenix brings that to all of his performances as well. And then we go from that character who's a little bit goofy, a little bit crazy from what you see in the trailer to Phoenix playing Jesus. But He's not the star of this movie. This is finally that Jesus and Judas tale being told from the perspective of Mary Magdalene, of course, played by Mara and Chiwetel Ejiofor is also in the film. Tahar Rahim, part of the cast, he was so good. One of my favorite performances of now several years ago in Jacques Odiar's A Prophet. All I know about the Jesus movie is Mm -hmm. the pictures I've seen of Phoenix smoking a cigarette in costume yeah <laughs> on a break they're pretty classic so you haven't watched the Track trailer those yet down. no i haven't it looks really good okay it looks really good and i think he will be fascinating to see as jesus though as i pointed out i think this movie is ultimately hopefully going to belong to mara and mary magdalene and then we go to lynn ramsey's you were never really here where he plays a contract killer who gets involved in a conspiracy while he's trying to save a teenager from some kind of prostitution ring. He's this hired gun. He looks absolutely ruthless and beaten down in the film. And just the the scope of those three characters that Phoenix is portraying here between the guy John Callahan in his wheelchair and Jesus and then going to this contract killer, that's why we go to see Joaquin Phoenix in movies because we are always going to be surprised. He's always going to play some new character that we've never seen him play before. He did win Best Actor for it last year at Cannes. Lynn Ramsey won Best Screenplay. It comes out April 6th. So that trio of Phoenix movies, but in particular, the two religious-themed ones are the two I'm most curious about. So you mentioned Odiard. Phoenix is actually in a 2018 film from him. I was just, I just saw this now jumping around as you were talking. I knew he had one coming out. I didn't know Phoenix was in it too. He is. The Sisters Brothers has a 2018 release date. In 1850s Oregon, a gold prospector is chased by the infamous duo of assassins, the Sisters Brothers. And it looks like he's one of the brothers. His role is Charlie Sisters, along with John C. Riley as Eli Sisters and Jake Gyllenhaal is also listed here. Good cast. Now, where was it said again? 1850s? Oregon. Oregon. Oh, Oregon. Oh, Oregon. Which, well, they're two very different places. <laughs> you now said it both ways. We're good. You've covered your bases, Josh. Those are our top five movie questions of 2018. Our podcast listeners will get a few more as we get into our honorable mentions in the next segment. We'd love to hear from you. What are you most excited to see this year? What are your questions about the movie year? Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Massacre Theater is also around the corner. We'll finally reveal the movie behind our throat-clearing performances of a few weeks back. Then after a costume change, we'll review Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread. Stay with us. Done your heart in my 
segment you heard our top five movie questions of the year we have a few more we want to share as we get to our honorable mentions but i know josh you also have your top 10 list just based on pure excitement about seeing these movies based on the titles or whatever you know about them have we not covered all 10 of these yet do you have a few yeah i'm looking really quickly yeah a couple we haven't mentioned at all incredibles 2 is you know huge but i'm very excited about it here's one i'm surprised neither of us had in our questions if beale street could talk this is barry Barry jenkins Jenkins following up moonlight and adapting a james baldwin novel no less so that is really exciting leave no trace is the first feature from deborah granick since 2010's winter's bone which was my favorite movie of that year I mentioned the Claire Denis and Nuri Bilgajelan movies already, and here's one more that's on my most anticipated list. Hold the Dark, Jeremy Sunier and mm-hmm. Wolves. Sounds, I'm in, right? right? I mean, that's got to be terrifying and awesome. So yeah, at the very top, I've got Isle of Dogs, Annihilation, Ready Player One, Incredibles 2, and then Steve McQueen's Widows as my top five most anticipated. You're a Ready Player One guy. Did you read the book, Josh? I, all I know is it's Spielberg not being serious. I'm I'm ready for that. And you're in for that. I don't have a list, but I do have a few more questions. One of them covering a lot of ground here. And you mentioned at least one of the titles, which Golden Brick finalist will make the better movie? We've got Hold the Dark, Jeremy Sonier, not just a finalist, but one, the Golden Brick, another winner, the inaugural winner, Duncan Jones for the movie Moon. His movie Mute is finally coming out with Alexander Skarsgård and Paul Rudd. Ben Zeitlin was a finalist for Your Beloved Beasts of the Southern Wild. I can't believe this didn't make your list, Josh Wendy. Yeah, I I did look into it. I don't think it's gonna. Yeah, I don't think it's gonna make it this year. So So I see it as 2018 in a few places. But Yorgos Lanthimos now seems like one of those established guys. Also, his his release dates jump around (laughs) from year to year. But he won previously for Dogtooth here on the show. He's got the favorite. So that that was one of my questions. Just I felt out of. I had it was a required thing. We have to have will Yorgos Lanthimos's movie come out this year? That's That's a great question. You're right. It just has to be obligatory at this point. Emma Stone and Rachel vice star in that and one of the ones that came up josh in your top five questions can you ever forgive me marielle heller another golden brick finalist another question where are the laughs what will the year's funniest movie be i wonder if it's going to come down to mid 90s which is the directing debut of jonah hill Catherine waterston stars lucas hedges jared carmichael also in the movie it's a story of a boy this is what i'm reading here growing up in la in the 90s i know nothing about this film but I wonder, is Jonah Hill sort of like Greta Gerwig making his own semi-autobiographical tale and being a Jonah Hill movie, will it be pretty funny? It's going to have tough competition against Holmes and Watson. Yes, will Ferrell saw this. as Sherlock Holmes, John C. Riley as Watson. It also has Ray Fiennes, Rob Brydon from the Trip movies and Rebecca Hall. That's a great cast. Don't think I didn't try to find a way to make that onto my top five questions. I'm shocked that you didn't. (laughs) Looking forward to that one. It's not in your top five, (laughs) to be totally honest. Your top five just most anticipated of the year. If not those two, The Incredibles 2 could be pretty funny. Or there were 
some amusing parts in the first Deadpool movie. We'll see what we get with Deadpool 2. My final question is kind of a play on one of yours. Who will have the best follow-up to their breakout movie? Is it going to be Leave No Trace, finally getting Deborah Granick's movie after Winter's Bone? Or will it be The Nightingale, Jennifer Kent's follow-up to The Babadook? It could also be Serenity, directed by Stephen Knight. I mentioned in my top five that Knight wrote the film Rio, another Luca Guadagnino film that's coming out this year. He has two others. Not only did he write the movie he's directing, Serenity, but he wrote the Girl in the Spider's Web as well. Serenity stars Matthew McConaughey, Anne Hathaway, Diane Lane, and Jason Clark. And I was such a fan of Locke that I'm, of course, interested to see what he does next. So those are my three honorable mention questions. But our wonderful production assistant, Jeremy Wellhausen, not only helped us do a lot of this research and coming up with the titles and the cast and the directors, but he threw out some questions for us to consider as well. And I think he has a few good ones in here. Does Richard Linklater return to his usual form with Where'd You Go, Bernadette? After an underwhelming Last Flag Flying, Kate Blanchett and Kristen Wiig star in Where'd You Go, Bernadette? That comes out in May. Can Terrence Malick get it the hell going again? Those are Jeremy's words. Very good question. I don't know how to say this. Redigund is the movie. It's another war movie of sorts. It's about a conscientious objector who refuses to fight for the Nazis in World War II, an Austrian who refuses to fight for the Nazis. Lars von Trier. He's making a movie about a serial killer. On a scale of 1 to 10, how disturbing is this going to be? <laughs> I think a very valid question. Riley Keough stars in that one along with Uma Thurman and Matt Dillon. Two more. What do we make of the movie that Christian Bale turned himself into a slug person for? The slug person in question, former Vice President Dick Cheney, director Adam McKay's movie Backseat about Cheney, the most powerful vice president in history and how his policies change the world as we know it. Jeremy, getting political. Finally, after a changing of its director and star, how does Bohemian Rhapsody shape up? We know all about Brian Singer being off that movie. I know, of course, there was a lot of talk about Sacha Baron Cohen playing the Freddie Mercury role. I don't recall for sure. I haven't done the research to know if Rami Malek was ever not the choice for this movie or anyone else did any filming. But of course, a lot of drama behind the scenes of that film. I'm a sucker in addition to astronaut movies for movies about music and musicians. So some great stuff there from Jeremy. And we know you've got some great stuff as well. Again, our email address, feedback at filmspotting.net. Breathe. Now, reach out. What do you see? Like darkness. And something else. Resist the last Jedi trolls, Ray. (laughs) The rest of you have maybe moved on to Paddington 2 and Jumanji and Circus Musical, maybe even The Commuter. But we feel like, and I'm just being a little bit tentative here, we can have an on-air production meeting as we go. But we have planned to explore some unfinished business with The Last Jedi and really finally get into not only some listener feedback, to the movie and our review, but get into spoiler territory with that film. So it's kind of The Last Jedi Round 2 was on tap for our very next show in lieu of another obvious big release to talk about here at the end of January. But Paddington, everyone is raving about it so much, and I did enjoy the first Paddington movie. As did I. Even if next week it would be a couple weeks old, I do wonder, and in fact I did wonder earlier today, If maybe we should talk about that instead, I posted a question on Twitter. The poll's not done yet. Over 500 responses. 
came out pretty decisively. If you had your choice, film spotting listeners, would you rather hear us talk about Paddington 2 or revisit The Last Jedi? 63% said The Last Jedi. Now, I probably shouldn't say this out loud because then it will raise expectations. What listeners probably don't know is we might be able to do both. Oh, if we actually see Paddington 2, I mean, if we are able to get to it and I hope to take my kids to see it this weekend, maybe we can do both. We'll see how it changes. So this is ironic. I tried to convince uh, some people in my family to see Paddington 2 over the weekend, and we ended up watching Empire Strikes Back instead. (laughs) So maybe that's a premonition (laughs) of where things are going. I think maybe the poll is coming out that way, too, because I'm also a fan of Paddington and want to see the sequel, especially after what I've heard. But not sure if that will give us as much to talk about, especially because I'm really itching to get into spoilers about The Last Jedi. There was a ton of stuff you and I couldn't talk about in our initial review because we tried to keep that spoiler free for listeners. And we haven't really discussed it much at all since. So, I mean, really, I'm dying to know your feelings on Space Leia. Adam. So that, I, I that's just, can't wait to share just one of the things my stunning thoughts we've on got, we've got as, to get to as the Twitterverse derisively refers to that character, Mary Poppins Leia. Yes. Yeah. For for maybe some good reasons. Some, so some good reasons. Stuff like perhaps. that. So, stuff like that. We've yeah. got to be able to talk about freely without yeah. worrying about, you know, hurting anybody's the world's dying to hear spoily they're feelings. Not, they're not oversaturated with Star Wars content. <laughs> and that is one thing I'm aware of. I know there are a lot of people out there. I can't believe it, but they listen to other film podcasts and radio shows who Wait, have also there I know. Are, there are other ones? I know. Who have also devoted a lot of time to The Last Jedi and now we're adding to that. So maybe people are burned out, maybe not. Hopefully you will enjoy next week's conversation. And maybe yes, we will get into some bear talk as well. Now We've got Massacre Theater coming up, but before that, we've got some Larson Recommends segment, and we did get a voicemail recently from a listener. I think it was Larry Carino. Larry, write me, of course, if I'm wrong, but I think you were the one who left the voicemail and said, you really were missing the Larson Recommends theme song. Was he? Yeah. If the film is by Wes Anderson, then it will make his list, or from Pixar or Disney, well, you get the gist. But heavy-handed messages really aren't his thing. Time for Larson Recommends on Film Spotting. So this might go down as one of the funnier films of 2018. Adam, Mom and Dad, written and directed by Brian Taylor. He's had a couple films out now. I think Jason Statham's Crank was his debut. This is, it's okay, it's not the first satire on what you'd probably call our kid-first era of parenting, you know, where where we as parents are molding our lives around our children rather than the other way around, which I think is how we were raised. There have been other movies that have poked fun of that. This is the darkest satire that I've seen on that phenomenon, basically. And this isn't giving too much away. It's pretty much the premise from the start, though, Taylor teases it a little bit in fun ways. It's set in this affluent suburban community where parents are suddenly inexplicably overcome with the urge to kill their own offspring. And yeah, that sounds horrible. It is. But the movie commits to its extreme comic point of view on this and makes it clear that it's it's spoofing. It's like the inverse of what Selma Blair plays the mother and she tells her surly teen daughter at one point, uh, it's just for me, you and Josh, her little brother, are everything. And so we know the movie is just setting out to skewer that and it does it gorily, gleefully, and it also has Nicolas Cage as the dad. I haven't mentioned that yet. Oh, yeah! 
You take your right foot out! You do the hook, you poke the end, you The funny thing is, Cage is going to be, I mean, people are going to be talking about probably two scenes in this movie with Cage. One where he he has this Looney Tunes monologue about no. a midlife cri- his midlife crisis, right? Just loses it. Crazy. He also has this climactic line reading of, you know what a Sawzall is? Yeah. Okay. He just points out that the name means- My wife means, showed me. <laughs> the name means Saws all. He's, he's very clear about- I can hear him saying He's it. very clear oh. about that. So those two scenes, you know, people are going to be laughing about. But there's an earlier one, and this is the movie's tone. This will give you an idea of the movie's tone. The father aggressively tackles the the boy, the son, who's about eight or nine, I think. And the movie plays it, the music and the camera angles play it as a horror moment, even though it's early and so everything's good now. And Cage does that thing where his his smile is friendly. But his eyes are deranged. Uh-huh. And so he's Nicolas Cage. No, no, but that's the I guess that's the distinction I'm making. Like he hasn't gone full cage yet. Mm-hmm. And and Cage is good this way. You know what? A partially hinged cage. I like. And you get that a little bit before he and the whole movie just goes completely unhinged. Um, there's a, a climactic twist. Not not really a twist, but just a plot development that uh, I think really saved me from getting a little wearied by the anticness of the camera angles okay. and the, the violent soundtrack and, and and that sort of thing. It really takes a clever turn in the finale. And yeah, not for the faint of heart. I would call it more of a comedy than a horror film um, and worth checking out if it sounds like it might be up your alley. Okay. If you are not faint of heart you can see mom and dad it's currently playing in limited release including here in chicago and is available to rent via video on demand if you see it and agree or disagree with josh's take email us feedback at filmspotting.net time for massacre theater the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a prize it seems like 10 years ago that josh and i massacred this scene where would you be without me i saved us it was me we survived because of me. Not anymore. What did you say? Master looks after us now. We don't need you. What? Leave now and never come back. No. Leave now and never come back. Leave now and never come back. That was Andy Circus, along with Andy Circus as Gollum and Smeagol in The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Which one was that, Adam? The first one, the second one, or the third one? I'm going to go with the second one. Nice. Just based on the two in the title. Well, a good guess. It doesn't really relate, but oh, you're, you're okay. right. It was written by Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyens, Stephen Sinclair, and Peter Jackson, based, of course, on the novel by J.R.R. Tolkien and directed by Jackson. That Massacre, part of a show that included our reviews of The Last Jedi and Call Me By Your Name. For the connections between those films and that massacre, we heard from Roger Wistar in Lakeville, Connecticut. It's from The Two Towers. The clear connection is Andy Serkis, who plays Gollum in four Lord of the Rings movies and Supreme Commander Snoke in Episodes 7 and 8 of the Star Wars series. Truly the goat of motion capture performers. Now, Sam has noted here, true fact, can't speak for you, but at least for me and Sam, this connection 
never occurred to us. Uh, no. <laughs> it didn't. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> the most obvious I forget, direct connection. I forget how this got suggested. Didn't occur to us. But I don't think it was because of that. No. We also heard from Michael. He's in Kiel, Germany. Of course, it's the famous monologue slash dialogue between Smeagol and Gollum from The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. A quite disappointing performance, to be honest. Adam didn't do anything interesting at all, while Josh sounded like he was choking on his own blood. <laughs> I hope Andy Circus will never hear this violation of his great performance. Okay. That well, keeps us awake at night thinking that the performers will ever hear these massive right. theater installments. Michael continues with the obvious tie-in, or at least the obvious one for us. The Two Towers was released 15 years ago on December 18th, 2002. It was the second installment in a big movie trilogy about a little group of courageous heroes fighting an evil empire led by a man with dark clothes, a mask, a deep voice, and magic powers. The main difference being that Sauron isn't a sulking teenager with an inferiority complex. Has Adam finally seen these movies, Michael asks? They are really good, even if you aren't a huge fan of the fantasy genre. So others wrote in with comments like this, questions like this, Curious if I had finally accepted these films and embraced them or just saying, I know Adam doesn't like these movies. It's not that I don't like them. I just actually I haven't say, seen them. Let's start with watching them first and then you can accept the them. very first movie. I know I've said this before, but the Fellowship of the Ring. I saw that movie when it came out in 2001. I was writing reviews for the time for the Daily Island. I had it in my top 10 of the year. Now, to be clear, I lived in Iowa City and I'd seen 13 movies that year. So it wasn't really an exclusive list, but the Fellowship of the Ring made the list. So I really, really like that movie. Not enough, apparently, to actually see the Two Towers or the Return of the King, even as it won all those Oscars. So I I, I don't judge them. Now, I do judge The Hobbit. I had to watch that because we reviewed it. We did. How? I, and that's still. I can't. And whatever the name of the how we was, managed to get you to review The Hobbit, there really could not have been anything else better that week. I can't imagine that, but. It's true. Lisa N. in Ayer, Massachusetts, or Ayer, says you have a nice little theme of two for this week's Massacre Theater. You have Andy Serkis' dual performance as Gollum and Smeagol. Sadly, Serkis is considerably less impressive as Snoke in Star Wars The Last Jedi. Just like with Jedi, The Two Towers was the second in a planned series of franchise films, and both Jedi and Towers deal with characters with massive internal conflicts. Just as Gollum argues with his original better self, Kylo Ren continually wavers from his evil quest and goes back to his old Ben ways by killing Redact saving redacted and purposely <laughs> failing in his mission to kill redacted Nicely thank you done. for your caution there lisa we also heard from alexander waldemar in algard norway i'm kind of disappointed in this week's massacre theater in the lord of the rings the two towers andy circus plays both Gollum and smeagol in the same take even but i guess for less seasoned actors such complex performances must be split up Ouch. the obvious connection andy circus plays snoke in the last jedi also the lord of the rings is a fantastic fantasy epic that would be ground to death by horrible sequels kind of what the last jedi does to star wars Ooh. oh alexander you Hits too keep on coming i'm sure there are lots of more subtle connections but i haven't actually seen the last jedi wait, wait a minute <laughs> <laughs> Nor do I intend to, so I'll leave it at that. Do, we don't. Why did we read, even read this? We don't read emails. I know from why we read this. Commenting on movies. We they read this seen. only for the PS. Oh, okay. I hope Josh yes. mentions how I came to the meetup in London, and then Adam asks if I came all the way from Norway. To which Josh replies that no, I'm studying in England or something. This has happened both times you read my emails. So Adam, I just <laughs> remembered Alexander came to the meetup in London. Did he come all the way from Norway? 
No, I, I think he was studying in England okay. or, or something like that. Yeah, that makes more sense. Adam Hoffer in Memphis, Tennessee wrote in, The obvious tie-in is to The Last Jedi for the reasons we've heard. Because I refuse to take the easy route, I have to find a way to find a tie-in with Call Me By Your Name. So here goes nothing. <laughs> Call Me By Your Name stars Army Hammer, whom co-starred in Free Fire with Brie Larson. Larson recently joined the Marvel Cinematic Universe as Captain Marvel. The most recent entry in the MCU is Thor, Around a rock, correct pronunciation learned from y'all's podcast. Nicely done. Which stars Kate Blanchett as Hella. Blanchett also played who, Josh? Say it. Galadriel. Okay. In the two towers. Well done. I think that I was mean, I think that was six degrees of separation if not, I was counting correctly. Not bad. Not bad at all. Thank you to everyone who wrote in and let's go ahead and reach into the fairly brimming film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner, Josh. The winner is Thomas Dempsey from Greenville, South Carolina. Congratulations, Thomas. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. Martin, look at me. I am looking at you. Now look at me the way I'm looking at you. Put it in your eyes. You're mine, asshole, without saying it. How about this? What are you telling me? That you're sleepy? That you want to go to bed? As a little bit of preparation for our performance... I cannot wait to see what you do with this role. I think this is going to be your greatest challenge. Well, let's it's your a challenge. greatest challenge. It's a challenge. That's true. <laughs> and I'm trying to remember now we've done this film before. We have. We haven't done this scene. No. I don't remember if I've done this character before. I don't think so. Okay. We'll have to check the tape, but <laughs> I don't believe so. Either way. If we did this scene as written or at least as directed and as you see it in the movie, it would include the name of one of the characters, and we are going to leave that out. But it would also include so many pauses that it would actually fill up the entire rest of the running time of the show. Yes, I believe it is a 48-minute scene. <laughs> so we are going to we're going to speed it up just a little bit here. Let's do it. We're going to cut down those pauses. I am really, really eager to see where you go with this. Josh, you started off. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? Um, yes. Action. That's a sorry-looking pelt. And it's been so nice and quiet for the last three months. Tell me, this charge, does it sit uneasy with you? No, not uneasy. Nah, I wouldn't say that. But my allegiance is to the law. I'm paid to uphold the law. What in heaven's name are you talking about? You may have misgivings, but don't go believing that, Jack. That way lies damnation. I'm in no danger of damnation. Here's the thing. I don't give a tuppany f about your more conundrum, you meat-headed shit-sack. That's more or less the thing. I want you to go out there. You and nobody else. None of your little minions. I want you to go out there. And I want you to punish the person who's responsible for murdering this poor little rabbit. Is that understood? And, and scene. scene. I, I don't know if any other scene has ever taken as much out of me. Yeah. I don't know about the results, <laughs> but I'm empty. Well, I got the emotion. I, the menace just wasn't quite there. Missing I the really, menace? I really wasn't quite scared of you the way I was scared of this character. So I'm scared maybe, of me. Maybe you needed a little bit more rehearsal. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, January 29th. Is this where Here's the Thing started? Can we blame this movie? Maybe. Here's the Thing? Maybe. I don't know if I've heard it any earlier than this. Anyway, the winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, 
<laughs> Visit filmspotting.net. All right, Adam, we are not dressed well enough for a review of Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread. We'll take care of that and be right back. Stay with us. from Paul Thomas Anderson's new film, Phantom Thread. And it's a good thing I know we both appreciate Anderson's latest film, Josh, because I mustn't have a confrontation. I simply can't begin this review (laughs) with a confrontation. Is it too early for you? It's too early. We each saw Phantom Thread set in 1950s London for a second time to prepare for this conversation. Separate screenings with our wives, same night at the Music Box here in Chicago. In 70mm, though my understanding is it wasn't shot in 70mm, it was shot in 35 and blown up to 70 And even sitting in the very last row, due to arriving just right at the time it was beginning. And it was packed, and it was right? Packed yeah, the us. earlier one was too. Yeah, which is great to see, Absolutely. of course, for a movie like this. I had about the best experience I could ask for. Watching with an enthusiastic audience, sipping a Sauvignon Blanc, having just come from a nice dinner, which also included a cocktail, I was by no means tipsy at the start of the movie. But by the end, I might have been intoxicated on the elegance of PTA's artistry. There is a subtle but undeniable lusciousness in his depiction of the House of Woodcock, the workplace and home of Reynolds Woodcock. Formerly, you'd call him a coutier, or as he more informally refers to himself early in the film, he's a dressmaker, played by Daniel Day-Lewis. On a trip to the country, Reynolds orders a very hearty breakfast from Vicky Creeps's Alma, and the two begin a relationship that sees her serve as both model and muse. I bring up my movie-going experience here because I think when many of us walk into a Paul Thomas Anderson film, we're kind of like the women we see in Phantom Thread walking in for their appointment with Woodcock, giddy with anticipation, knowing that we're entering the domain of a master craftsman, someone who is in complete control of his talents. All we have to do is acquiesce and put ourselves in his capable hands. Josh, how would you best prepare someone, whether a new or repeat PTA client, for the ideal Phantom Thread experience? 
Well, you know, you, first you can go back to some of his other films, and maybe we'll get into the ones that are most pertinent to Phantom Thread. I think There Will Be Blood is a good starting point, not only for Daniel Day-Lewis, but for the sort of character he's playing, you know, an ambitious and determined man. I would say, though, that Hitchcock might be a more apt starting point or preparation point for this movie, and I definitely want to talk about which Hitch films this seems to draw from the most. But really? you might be best served by reading up on fashion, especially if it's not something that you pay much attention to or have thought a lot about. I know we happened to go to this high fashion exhibit that was at the Mets uh, Costume Institute about a year and a half, maybe two years ago. And it was really helpful in understanding just the aesthetics and philosophy of fashion design. There were some amazing gowns there. The dresses in Phantom Thread just mean so much. I mean, visually there's so much but they also mean so much to what's going on in a given scene um that uh it's really helpful to have that sort of vocabulary yeah. almost going in and maybe I, we should learn to sew like well, you know day lewis did maybe. for his role and definitely i want to hear before we're done which dress was your favorite <laughs> if we can get to that in uh, what i think will probably be a pretty in-depth review because there is so much to talk about here. There is. And I think that the tips I would give someone fall right in line with the things I really love about this movie. And just like with every PTA film, finally seeing this movie a second time did unlock a little bit of it for me. And a lot of it ties with my number one tip, which is to embrace the humor. I did not go into this film expecting to laugh at it. I thought of it as a very serious Paul Thomas Anderson film, very refined, very sophisticated, just based even on the way it opens and what maybe I had seen or perceived about the movie. Every PTA film, if you go back through them, even the ones that are the most serious or the ones that seem like they have no jokes whatsoever have moments of absurd humor. There Will Be Blood is a good example. The master has a lot of scenes and individual lines that are really quite funny, especially on repeat viewing. But you don't really think of any of his movies as comedies. Boogie Nights may be the closest. Inherent Vice, I would say, is a straight comedy. That's a good point. Inherent Vice is a movie that... But this is almost as funny. Yeah, it, it is comic in tone, but still maybe not a movie that I remember laughing out loud at that much. And this film has a ton of those types of laughs, but you do have to embrace it. You have to go in with that mindset a little bit, because I noticed that even watching it with that packed house... They were very much like I was when the movie started the first time I saw it. That line that I joked about, I mustn't have a confrontation, that's one of the first lines of dialogue in the film where we see Woodcock with Joanna, I believe is her name, who is the predecessor to Alma. His model, maybe his muse, they're in a relationship and she's being ignored and they're at breakfast and he's just trying to to work on his drawings and his designs and he really doesn't want to talk at all and she dares to offer him some kind of pastry and it turns into this thing where he's admonishing her because he doesn't want to have any kind of confrontation he keeps repeating that that's really funny but nobody was laughing oh really but, no nobody was laughing in my theater and i wasn't either at that point but i was really seeing the humor but even just 10 minutes down the road 20 minutes down the road Everybody loosened up a bit. Yeah, and when you it. get to some lines later, like in one argument when he says to her repeatedly, are you a secret agent? Do you have a gun? Are you here to kill me? He keeps saying that. And there are a bunch of other 
definite laugh lines I could point to. Everybody was with it. We were all laughing out loud. And I do think you have to see this movie on some level as a comedy. Yeah. And the, the crowd we were with was in it pretty much from the start. I remember being relieved and excited when the laughs started coming to think, oh, this is going to be fun, different than my initial viewing experience to even the visual humor. Think about that shot that's in the commercials and the trailers of him when, when she says she's going out dancing on New Year's Eve, no matter what he says. Yeah. And then there's this shot of him leaning into the frame, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just like, yeah. He doesn't want to act like he cares, but then he makes right. that very dramatic move to see, is she really well, leaving? Well, and just so. his facial expressions. I mean, anything yeah. involving eating in this movie, and there's a lot of food in here. Mm-hmm. We may even talk about that, but there's a scene early and a scene late where... Everything seems to be perfect between them. And then she dares to take a bite of toast or butter her bread. Yes. And then later she's eating oatmeal and just kind of biting on the spoon a little too much. And when <laughs> when it cuts to Daniel Day-Lewis in close up, just looking at her. Yeah. And then almost his, like he wants his to grimace. throw her over the railing. That is really funny stuff. So you just do have to go with that. I would also warn people, I suppose, that if you are going into this and if you've seen other PTA films You're probably not, but there really is no, this isn't a conventional film in the sense that there's no clear sort of plot A to B to C, character motivation, character objective. It's not a movie like I thought it was going to be about the fashion industry. This really is a love story, Mm -hmm. perhaps a very twisted one, but a love story nevertheless. It's completely about the evolution of a relationship yes, and the process two people go through when in love. That's it. So there can be, at least for me on first viewing, a little bit of that feeling of, wait, is this all there is? Mm. This is all that happens in this film. Now, the second time, plenty happens and it all fits together perfectly. It's a great little puzzle, but that's all it is. So if you are looking for something more in terms of a plot, Woodcock his empire growing or his empire falling apart and those kind of business and maybe even personal machinations, that doesn't really happen. It is about this relationship. I would also say to people that as much as you should come for Daniel Day-Lewis's performance and Vicky Creeps's performance, they are both magnificent in this film. Stay for Leslie Manville. Oh, yeah. She plays Cyril, who is his old so-and-so, as he keeps referring Mm -hmm. to her, the sister to Woodcock. And they've got this very close relationship and watching her performance, the stillness that she brings to it as Cyril, her pulse never quickens, no matter the situation, no matter if even other characters around her are a little bit panicked. She kind of has that that classic British stoic reserve. And there's one line, I think literally not even a line, a word where she raises her voice a little bit. But that's it in the entire film. Otherwise, she's completely calm. She's in control all the time. And the thing that really emerged to me on that second viewing is how really skillfully Manville navigates the performance and allows for ambiguity in how we perceive Cyril, but also makes her a character who we can actually like and who we can actually see is having some warmth and not be just the third wheel in this who feels like maybe she's being betrayed. These women are always in her house, but maybe this one, it's a little more serious and she feels threatened. You think that might be the way it's going, but you start to see elements come through in her character and her performance that make you understand that actually she is a little bit more sympathetic. And I think about even at one point when she takes tea into Reynolds, this is a scene where Alma has come across from her separate bedroom 
she wants in. She clearly wants to go snuggle or whatever with Reynolds. And he's basically like, no, I'm fine. I don't need anything. Next thing you know, Cyril's coming up the stairs with his tea. She goes into the room. Now, this can play as a laugh line where it's like the girlfriend who wants in is being kicked out by the sister. And she even turns to face her when she goes in the room and closes the door on her. You could see it one way as kind of this in your face. I've got this. You don't really need to be here. But actually, the more I studied it, Josh, I realized that it's this nice kind of moment where she doesn't just go past her and rush past her and kick the door closed. She has the the etiquette and the courtesy to actually to actually look at her, to actually acknowledge that she's at least there. And she does close the door. And it doesn't feel to me like a slap in the face. Later, there's a scene where she's warned her against doing something that she really wants to do. And when she finally leaves, she leaves the house to just be. Alma and Reynolds, she says, good luck. One of those lines where the first time you hear it, you think she's being sarcastic. The second time you realize she's actually wishing her good luck. She knows this isn't going to work, but she's wishing her luck. Yeah, I I agree that Cyril is more complicated and does have this uh, endearing, caring side. I guess caring side is what what you're getting at. I also think that etiquette can be a weapon. And in the scene you're describing and going in the room, I, I think that is a laugh line. And that is... A power play. And so this is what this movie is yeah. like about is like it, it power is. dynamics worse, among this wouldn't relationship. Wouldn't it actually be worse, though, to forego the formality and the etiquette and just shut the door in her face? So that's well, that's not, kind of the, the dichotomy there that I think is, is not for Cyril. I think you see I think that I think that's a power play. One of her many power plays. I think you see some of that caring and vulnerability. And this speaks to the precision of the performance that you're talking about, too, is what she gets across in so few words yes. when she chooses to drop them in this house of silence. And this is at one breakfast where she just says out of the side of her mouth over tea to Reynolds, something like, I'm quite fond of her. Yes. Which is like an atom bomb in terms of her commenting and how he conducts his private life, right? Mm-hmm. She's kind of his hatchet man in a lot of ways. Previous muses models these women. He sometimes has her tell them it's time for them to go. Yes. He doesn't even have the guts to do that no. himself. But here she is not only not doing that, but recognizing that this is a person mm-hmm. that he's playing with and that it's a person she cares for. Now, quite fond of her doesn't sound like overflowing with love, but but for Cyril, yes, it, it absolutely is. Yeah. So it's an amazing performance yeah. and I think was among my, my best supporting performances of the year, but right up alongside these other two. I mean, you could almost say that Day Lewis's performance falls behind that of the two women in Maybe. this film. I mean, we don't we don't need to rank them, but when I think about the deliciousness of the performances, I certainly would say that I enjoyed some of the line readings and maybe to going back to my point, some of the power plays made by Creeps and Manville more. Yeah, I'm I'm with you completely. I just think with minor modulations to that performance, she could have been a monster with no yes, warmth for sure. her whatsoever and really no sense of her even having her own personality distinct from her brother. She could have just been kind of the enforcer character, which she is in a lot of ways in the protector who's getting in Alma's way. But as much as Manville could have really sunk her teeth into that and delighted in doing that, and it would have been fun as an audience member to watch, it wouldn't have been as rewarding as what we get here. It's more complex here. Would you like me to ask Alma to leave? No. Why? Well, if you're going to make her a ghost, go ahead and do it, but please don't let her sit around waiting for you. I'm very fond of her. 
Oh, you're very fond of her, are you? Well, in that case... No, don't turn it on me. I don't want your cloud on oh, my head. shut up, You can shut right up. Don't pick a fight with me. You certainly won't come out alive. I'll go right through you, and it'll be you who ends up on the floor. Understood? And what's interesting is what makes Cyril turn that way, and it really is the same thing that makes Reynolds turn as much as he does, is Alma's refusal to play her part. I mean, she, as much as she stands up in very subtle ways to Reynolds, she does stand up to Cyril, too. Now, she gets passed up for that tea in the scene you're talking mm-hmm. about. But later on, she almost does a reverse power play to Cyril when Reynolds is sick and Alma takes the lead yes. on caring for him. Yes. And closes the door on her very purposefully. Mm-hmm. And and it seems like that response of telling these two people who have had such rigid lives of control and power over every minute element, when you stand up to that and push back on that, they respond with a strange sort of love. So you definitely right. see that happening with Reynolds. And as you're talking about it, I'm realizing that it does happen with Cyril, too. Yeah, The details of this movie, and I think we could point to a lot of different examples of this, but I remember I joked about Daniel Day-Lewis, even though, from what I understand, it really happened, that he wanted to learn how to sew because he has that whole method approach to this, and that was part of his preparation. But when they cut to close-ups of Daniel Day-Lewis's hands, not even in scenes where he's sewing, they look like the hands of someone who has been nicked a few times, who isn't just this guy who has been the designer who's sketching in his notepad but never gotten his hands dirty. He he knows every part of this business. Now, I know you mentioned Hitchcock, and Rebecca is a touchstone for this. I've seen that film. I've seen some other Hitchcock films, maybe not recently enough to really draw on them. I can speak to some other PTA films, and another bit of advice I might give to people going in who are really steeped in PTA is I'd say it's a surprise to me that it's not an American film. I mean, it's set in London, and it really isn't about in any way what we might classify as the American experience, the way all of his other films are, the most blatant examples being Inherent Vice, There Will Be Blood, Boogie Nights, I think, qualifies The Master. They all qualify. I think those are just the best examples. So that's one way it stands out. It stands out as well, I think, in terms of it being largely a romance. I think Punch Drunk Love might be the only other film that we could point to as being really fundamentally about a boy and a girl, a man and a woman in love with each other. So that is something unique as well. But where it really fits in nicely with his body of work, and this is something I didn't see as clearly on that first viewing, is the way it's about a sort of mentor-protege relationship, which we see in so many of his movies, codependent relationships. And here we've got that triangle between Reynolds, Alma, and Cyril that I think mirrors nicely what we see from Lancaster Dodd, Freddie Quell, and Peggy Dodd, In The Master, there are other examples where you've got the outsider who kind of comes in and disrupts a marriage. Here it's the marriage between brother and sister. The notion of con men in Paul Thomas Anderson's movies or fakes, he seems to be the real deal for the most part. He does understand this world of fashion. He knows how to make these dresses. And yet what I think the movie shows him to really be selling Josh is refinement. He's someone who's selling He's selling order. He's selling rigidity. He's selling rules. It's a it's a world. This is post-war London. Everything is still a little bit topsy-turvy. And he's selling this notion of order. And there's an honesty and integrity to him 
that I also really appreciate that even I'd say Lancaster Dodd had in the master where he may be a complete phony. We may see that, but he believes every word that he's saying. And I think we see that with Reynolds as well. He says early on, I'm never going to get married because I'd have to compromise myself. And so he's not going to do that. He's not willing to be dishonest to himself or anyone that he's with. And so he's going to keep being the person that he is. That means that he's his own kind of monster sometimes, but at least he's an honest one. Or could it be that Alma is the con man in this scenario? I mean, the movie at first seems the opposite of that. And then it takes, shall we say, a significant turn. And you begin to wonder about motivations. And honestly, at one point I thought, okay, was this something she had planned a while ago Hmm. when it makes that turn and and tried to think back to scenes? And because there's something about Creep's performance and the way she plays Alma that lets you in from the very start that she's not playing this game that he's played with all these other women before in the exact same way. And she is subservient in a lot of ways. And he is definitely domineering. The first action together is he places a lunch order when he meets her as a waitress and then grabs the paper and says, you are not going to have this now. Essentially, I'm going to keep memorize. Yeah. Yeah, Memorize what I ordered. They go out to dinner that night. He wipes her lipstick off her and it's, you know, he's taking control, but there's something about her, even in those first scenes where She's giving it back to him. Yes. She answers always. questions a little bit off. Mm-hmm. Her facial expressions are not, you know, the coquettish, admiring ones that he's used to. And as I was mm-hmm. saying, I think this is part of the appeal for him about her, but it also eventually becomes too much for him yes. to handle. And that's where the power games start to come into play. And I think this is, I know you need to catch up with Mother yet, uh, so I won't belabor the point, but this is really what stood out to me. As a better dressed mother, because for all the things going on in Mother and Tasha Robinson and our top 10 show when she had on her list mentioned a number of them, the most coherent thing going on there is this similar muse idea of a master filmmaker creating a story about a creator, an artist who has a woman in his life serving the muse role and how that is, how that may be problematic. I think both movies are Mm -hmm. wrestling with the idea of are forms of confession in a way, but mother though, the vast majority of it is from Jennifer Lawrence's character's point of view is bookended by the creator's point of view, punishes her for much of the film and comes across to me as a half-hearted apology. This, the way phantom thread goes and particularly how creeps plays this part we won't give it all away, but it's a complete subversion of that. Yeah. It, to me, it's a subversion of the woman as muse to be used mm-hmm. trope. This is a muse. Alma is a muse who ends up using. Yes. And that's what I thought was so phenomenal about the film. You're a very handsome man. You must be around many beautiful women. Why are you not married? I make dresses. You cannot be married when you make dresses. I'm certain I was never meant to marry. I'm a confirmed bachelor. I'm incurable. (sighs) Okay, so I'm going to pick that right up because we're going to do a little bit of listener service here. Following the thread that you just began going back to Mother and our Top 10 show, we had a listener, longtime member of our forum, goes by Alice Guy Blosh, who wrote in, in response to that top 10 show where Mother came up, Phantom Thread, and I, Tanya, and said that he was shocked that 
we never really acknowledge the problems that many people have with all three films. I'm quoting here, they either have a questionably misogynistic view of their leading female characters or don't treat their problems with the respect they deserve. I hope that someone else on the roundtable would have discussed these problems, but not a peep. Going on, both Mother and Phantom Thread don't investigate the central female characters beyond their relationship to their man. Their goal is to love a man who is withholding love from them because they're obsessed with their art. Regardless of how innovative in style they are, the core narratives of these films have not only been done before, but are pretty repugnant. So I think you already spoke to a little bit of this. We heard some of your response. I'm going to echo a little bit of that here. I do think it's important to recognize the context when the movie takes place, and I don't mean just that it's the 1950s and it's a less enlightened time, generally fewer opportunities for women, whatever. We have to recognize the time and who Alma is. And PTA only very subtly gives us clues. But it comes through that she's an immigrant in England. She has no mother or father. There's a character we meet very early on and then again later, a customer of Reynolds who derides Alma and questions what the customs of her people are. The implication to me is pretty clear that she's Jewish. She probably fled a terrible wartime situation and she's now coming into this world of the House of Woodcock. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that she then has to be grateful to Reynolds for taking her in like she's some kind of lost puppy who's been saved from this life of waitressing. But I do think it means, Josh, that it might be asking a little bit too much to require her to be a woman with a grand design and ambition for her life. And she knows how it's all going to play out or has visions of how it's going to play out so that when she falls in love, her focus would still be on all these personal priorities and not her man. I think we have to allow for her priority in this context to be this man that she's fallen in love with. Sure. I think, I think that's entirely fair, but I think the movie does go even I well do too. beyond that. I do too. That's I mean, just I the think, first point. Yeah, yeah I, I think, think that, she's... I think much more importantly, the conundrum that Alice Guy Blosh is describing is what the whole film is actually about. That's what the whole film is dealing with. It's provoking the question, how do you manage a relationship, being in love with someone, when it works, only if you give yourself over to them completely? Every piece of me, as Alma says at one point in the opening but still maintain some shred of your identity and your individuality. That's what the movie's about. How do you compromise the thing he said he wasn't willing to do? How do you compromise yourself, put yourself completely in the hands of another person and have complete faith in them, trust them, but not be dishonest yourself, actually embrace it. That's, that's part of that evolution that we actually see with these characters. And to your point, Josh, we constantly see Alma asserting herself. She's always exhibiting, I would say, agency in her choices, sometimes in action, sometimes just verbally. But each act of defiance asserts her power. And we could list literally 20 examples from the movie of this. And we aren't even getting into the last 20 or 30 minutes, as you mentioned, and how Reynolds responds to those choices that she makes. But I guess I'd be a lot more concerned about the gender politics on display if Alma was portrayed as some doting wallflower. But she's constantly insisting constantly asserting, constantly establishing her own version of control. And the line, the key line, I think really for her and for the whole movie is when she says to a character, I think off screen at this point, she wants to love him the way she wants to. Not anyone else, not dictated by anyone else. Maybe that does sit uneasily with some modern viewers, but for me, it makes her a fascinating and certainly a very strong female character. Well, here's a simple question. Who holds the power at the end of this film? That's it. I mean, I, I, without giving anything away, I'm going to argue that it's entirely in her hands 
by her actions, by mm-hmm. her choices, possibly by her machinations. I mean, I think another way of reading this film is what I was suggesting that this could be a romance. This could very easily be a long con. <laughs> and depending I don't on see how, it that way. I don't know how you want to read it. Okay. I want to view it more well, romantically, that well, it's two perhaps, people giving themselves perhaps, over to each other. Yes, perhaps. I think that's completely as legitimate. As perverse as they may do it. It can also be seen as a woman in the situation you described seeing an opportunity and going to play this cad for the way he's mm. seen exactly how he now, treats you, women you and really using see it that, that way though I think an argument could be made mm. for it okay it, it, it struck me as more film? it struck me as more romantic the second time and here's what else struck me more the second time which speaks to this is Alma's development as artist and yeah. that that I didn't quite pick up on there, there's a reference to the dress she's wearing that night mm-hmm. when she sends everyone away to have a night just the two of them and he says Oh, is that your dress? And the first time I saw it, I didn't catch. I think he meant she designed it, and yes. and you perhaps you know had a hand in the making of it as That's well. It. Yeah. And we see this. She increasingly gets involved in the work of the house, mm-hmm. and is interested in fashion yeah. itself. And there is a there is a hint, a suggestion, a dream, a maybe, maybe that someday down the road. This isn't in the film, but we're left to imagine. Perhaps she takes over the House of Woodcock as principal designer. So this is a whole nother rich thread that counters any complaints to the film mm-hmm. being misogynistic in any yeah. way. I think a key scene that speaks to a lot of what we're talking about, it happens about midway through the movie. You won't get into the details, but he's made a dress for someone that they both find to be a little bit vulgar and they attend her event. And there's a really funny scene where they go and get the dress back and it's woodcock's idea to do it but it's alma who completely on her own goes in and gets that dress back which leads to the first moment you mentioned josh how this relationship this dynamic between them and her power is something that excites him and also turns him off a little bit well her action her willfulness her ability to go get that dress back even if it does serve him on some level the fact that she goes and gets it and they bond over that is what leads to the first time he says, I love you. That brings that out of him. But she goes and gets that dress and then maybe delivers the single funniest line in the movie, the admonition. She could no longer behave like this in a dress from the House of Woodcock. <laughs> I mean, that that's purely her talking. She's sharing the sentiment of the man she loves. But that is completely her own actions and her own assertions. Yeah. And the, and the distinction there is that she says House of Woodcock not Reynolds Woodcock. Right. And what I mean by that is it is not him she's defending or trying to win over there. It's the dress. It is the art. It's the art. Okay. And so when he sees that she, that they share the passion for this art, that's another piece to this ingredient in this recipe. There's the willfulness and the pushing back on his boorishness that appeals to him, but also her emergence as not only an appreciator of art, but an artist as well. So let's let's hit Hitchcock real quick because you're absolutely right on Rebecca. First one that came to mind uh, with the just there's just a ghostliness about this multi-level mansion that he lives in. The silence we mentioned he references as well. Um, he says something early on about being comforted by the idea of the dead watching over us. So that all has Rebecca going on. Vertigo in the way this relationship eventually goes and mm. being one of let's just say power yes but also strange obsessions i think there's a little vertigo there the second time man i saw a lot of psycho 
<laughs> I would not have guessed that. There's this whole thread yeah. with Reynolds' mother, who, and, and here's a little Rebecca, yes. who actually appears as a ghost mm-hmm. in one brief, wonderful scene. But he's continually referencing his mother. It's one of the first stories he tells Alma is how important his mother was to him. And watching the second time, I was thinking, man, we're we're getting a little psycho territory here. And then... During the other wonderful fashion show scene, uh, see, you're gonna where take they're it. walking, I thought I was gonna, the people, I was gonna nail you with he's it. He's actually the rear window moment. looking through. Well, yeah. I I was thinking he was looking through the peephole, oh. like Norman Bates. Oh, okay, and so but I go, what's the rear window? Was, well, I was thinking of that the peephole, but I was thinking of it as almost voyeuristic. Yeah, it's this wonderful. It's the most erotic moment in the entire film, actually, where she is wearing the dress in front of an audience. They're basically looking at the dresses and bidding like on a them. Private I showing. Think. It seems like yeah, a private showing. And she becomes aware during her little twirl when she gets close to a door that Reynolds is behind the door looking at her through that people. And so it's that moment of him watching her and Mm -hmm. her knowing she's being watched that brings her so much pleasure. And that, to me, seemed right out of Rear Window. Well, and Grace Kelly's dress is in Rear Window, too. There's another connection. So, yeah, yeah, a lot of good Hitchcock stuff here. And I I think the one distinction might be that... it becomes it goes to such a weird place. It's like one of Hitchcock's later, more psychologically explicit films, I think, where mm-hmm. you're you're kind of like, oh, what's this guy thinking about? But it also has this aching vulnerability to it that we didn't really get in a lot of those pictures. No. So I think that kind of sets it apart. You know, when I go to movies on the rare occasions where I bring a notepad, I scribble like two things that I can't read later and ask me for a pen. Yeah, I always ask you for a pen. Well, this time I brought the notepad, had to ask my wife for a pen. Fortunately, she obliged. <laughs> I took like six pages of notes on this movie. Oh, I'm sure. On the second viewing. And we didn't get to half of the stuff. I mean, there are just okay, that the music. many details. And what did you say about, about the music? Greenwood. Because we're going to talk about the music. Well, I've heard Paul Thomas Anderson talk about this, and there's a little bit of Schubert in there, and there's some other there popular music yes. that's really, really good. So I don't want to confuse that with the Johnny Greenwood, but the stuff that is Johnny Greenwood is unmistakably his. And it's very different than the There Will Be Blood music, and yet it still brings a little bit of that eeriness and unsettling. a little bit of that, yeah, unsettling is the perfect some word for it, here and there. still lush oh my at gosh. the same time. Oh. So it, it just captures, it captures that house so well. And you know what? That house, that's another thing I did want to say. I saw this movie... Not to belabor Call Me By Your Name again, but I saw this movie within a couple of days of seeing Call Me By Your Name originally, and I saw a lot of similarity there And that I think they are both movies largely about pleasure, the pleasure they take from wearing these dresses and making these dresses. And I said food, too, is such a key part of this movie, the pleasure people take in eating food. Dollops of cream show up two different times in this movie. Does it, doesn't he say so that it's a little bit naughty? Yeah, About exactly. having cream in the house. That's it. <laughs> so that is a big part of this movie, pleasure. But the other part is these these films taking place largely within kind of sealed universes. Obviously, it's more sealed here because it's, for the most part, all in this house. They get out a little bit here and there, the countryside, but for the most part, it all takes place in this house, similar to the way Call Me By Your Name takes place all within this this estate. So there is something similar in these two films for me, and the music manages to reflect everything about the feeling we get watching these characters within this space. Yeah, I had the same thought about the music as I wanted to isolate because I, I don't know classical music well enough to identify it immediately while watching the film, too. So I ended up listening to the score, the Greenwood score today, and there are a couple of themes there, including one called just the Phantom Thread theme. I think there's four variations on it that are, it's so romantic. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, there's these crescendos that 
really rise up in the end final scene where you realize what this has all led to. Mm -hmm. And it's just absolutely beautiful. Very dramatic. And then there's one called House of Woodcock. That's the robust piano score that's at the opening scene, which we haven't talked about really. It's Well, it was one of my opening scenes. Yeah, yeah, we talked about it there. The melody there is just cascading up and down as the camera does the same thing Mm -hmm. in those stairs. It's it's like, it's, it's audibly spiraling as the camera yeah. is and, but it's not too much it's not like I'm no. probably making it sound like it's just over the top and no. it's, it, elegant it's, is the word yeah that's it's it. just enough of it to to bring you into that world mm-hmm. and get a sense of this morning ballet that takes that is choreographed to take place every morning yep. as he grooms himself the perfect way as his employees come into the house and they all go through their movements and and it's just beautifully scored by Greenwood. Yeah, and to that point, how it's not overdone, I noticed this time that there's a shot of Cyril going down the stairs as part of this morning routine and the camera pans a little bit, but basically actually just sits on her going down the stairs and then as soon as some other characters pass her and go upstairs, the camera follows them. So it's almost an optical illusion where you think the camera's going down the stairs and then going up it, but it's not. It's just actually letting Cyril be the one moving in the frame and then the camera follows the lead of the other women. And so it's very economical and yet kind of breathtaking. Yeah, and and maybe we'd have to study it more closely, but maybe it feels that way because the music at that point is going mm-hmm. down. The music is very yeah. rising and falling as as the camera does as well. Okay, so we've we've done plenty of talking, but how how about the dresses? Did one stand out to you? Do you remember a scene where it was more crucial? I I can tell you that my my probably favorite one was this rose one that I think is featuring, remember he talks about this Flemish lace that's centuries mm-hmm. old, and we see it mostly when she's sitting on a couch at the start of a fashion shoot, and it just kind of cascades around her, again, mm-hmm. a lot like the music, right? This feeling of cascading. Um, but I think probably the one more crucial to the movie is the scene we were talking about and you called the most erotic is that private showing mm-hmm. where he watches her through the the peephole uh she's wearing this red one that also it's a little more um casual i guess you'd right. say than that other gown also features some some white lace but there she just comes alive in in that dress in a way that expresses her joy i mean all of these dresses make it's interesting. They transform her. They don't improve her. You know, this mm-hmm. isn't like, oh, now she's pretty. No. This isn't a a, a Disney princess no. moment. She this says is she like feels perfect. In she them. talks about it that yeah. way. It transforms her and it just makes her different in a way that you can appreciate. And you see that in the private showing sequence. I think it also just captures the thrill of what it probably it must be like to have an extravagant piece of clothing made just for you, right? Just right. for your body. That's what he talked. That's how they meet. Mm-hmm. Um, and when she gets a chance to to show that and experience that in that scene, uh, yeah, it's it's an, uh, another amazing point of connection between them. Yeah, that's a great choice. I think for me, it's earlier in the film and it's the dress that's purple that she wears to the restaurant they go to mm. when he tells her how beautiful she looks. Yeah. And when she walks in and you can tell the way she's beaming, she knows that she she owns this place. And it's the dress, I believe, that on the first night they meet, he's making. He kind of just impromptu yes, starts yeah, making it be, because he be. grabs he grabs the purple. It's fabric. the same fabric. Yeah, he grabs right. the fabric and he puts it over her shoulder. And then we actually see that dress come to fruition and how perfect it truly does look on her in that moment. I also like it because 
She looks amazing. He looks amazing. They end up going to dinner. The music is so perfect at this point. It's all about how this is just the best night ever, right? And then what happens? Cyril shows up. (laughs) Cyril shows up. He sits closer to Cyril. Mm -hmm. Mirrored later in the film, there's another moment where they're happy, where he's finally closer to her. And I think that's obviously very important. But in this moment, despite how it's supposed to be so perfect, he's sitting closer to Cyril talking to Cyril. I think the music's playing. We don't really hear what they're saying. But the fact that she's just separated from them, it really hits you in that moment. I think what hits her in the moment as well is she recognizes that that actually, at this point, is her only function there. Her function is to look perfect. Her function is to look beautiful. But she's not really, at this point an equal or a partner with right. him. Yeah. She recognizes that outsider still. She sees where the power is. Great bit of sound design there too, as you're talking about the music, the waiter comes in, I think before Cyril even arrives and shoves a table into theirs to right. make a room for her. And it's like, you know, it's just that screeching that mm-hmm. tables make on restaurant floors that interrupts yeah. the beautiful music <laughs> that like lets us know what's about to happen. The funniest visual moment in the film, it just hit me. I remembered what is the funniest visual moment in the film. It's, the big scene where they are finally alone together. And I'm not going to spoil everything that happens there, but I'll say it's supposed to be this big night for Alma. Reynolds is not having any of it. And I think he goes and takes a bath and then he comes down. What he's wearing? (laughs) The outfit he's wearing when, when Daniel Day Lewis walks down that staircase and he's wearing just, I mean, he just got out of the bath and he's wearing like a smoking jacket over two other layers and these pants and, if you don't laugh at that, then I will say you're doing something wrong watching this movie. That's intended wearing, to be funny. I believe he's wearing his pajamas with he is, all this fancy with four stuff. Layers. He, he's out of sorts. He's out of routine. That's he it. doesn't know what to do. Right. Yeah. Well, that's it's, also it's the really moment. Good. If you watch with the cinematography too, that moment when he comes back to that house and he realizes it's unlike any other time he's ever come back. His order has been Mm -hmm. upset. That's the only time in the movie we ever see Reynolds Woodcock look bad. He is so put together Mm. every time we see him. The way the camera composes him, he's always composed. In that moment, this low-angle shot, the close-up of his face, there's harsh white light on him. His hair is disheveled. He, He does not know how to cope. With True. this world that he's not in complete control of. I, he, he doesn't look too great when he's violently vomiting either. But <laughs> okay, good we, point. We, we'll, we won't get into that. <laughs> Phantom Thread is out now in limited release, expanding to more screens. Hopefully more of you will get a chance to see it and will understand all the details we're discussing here. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on the film. You can tell us whether you agree or disagree. Email feedback at filmspotting.net. And that's our show. Over at filmspotting.net, you'll also find 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. We've got a poll there, too, looking ahead to an upcoming show. We're going to be asking, what is 1983's best comedy? Yeah, we threw this together today, Josh, me and Sam. I like it. We're hitting you. Good films with here. With the best comedy of 83, we're going to do maybe a little bit of blind spotting and a top five, part of our year-by-year countdown. So if you want to be a part of that, please do go vote now. And if you haven't already, please do check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts. We've got the next picture show and Film Spotting SVU. You can find them in Apple Podcasts or through your preferred podcast app. 
One more plug for Filmspotting.net. That's also where you can find new Filmspotting merch. So check it out at Filmspotting.net slash shop. Out in wide release this weekend, 12 Strong, the story of the first Special Forces team deployed to Afghanistan after 9-11. Michael Shannon and Chris Hemsworth star Den of Thieves, an elite unit of the L.A. County Sheriff's Department versus the state's most successful bank robbery crew, Gerard Butler and 50 Cent star in that. Forever My Girl, also out in wide release, a country star returns home to the love he left behind. In limited release, Mom and Dad, a movie that Josh Larson recommends. A mass hysteria of unknown origins causes parents to turn violently on their own kids. Nicholas Cage. You will never think of rock sets. It must have been love the same again. Well, that's all I needed to hear. I'm in. Small Town Crime, also out. An alcoholic ex-cop hunts for the killer of a young woman. The great John Hawks, the great Octavia Spencer, the great Robert Forster, the great Dale Dickey, all-star. Great ensemble there. Next week here on Film Spotting. We're still feeling it out a little bit. We know we're going to respond to the Oscar nominations because I believe they will be announced that week just before our show goes out. We will talk about The Last Jedi, revisit that a little bit, get into some spoilers on that film and get listener reactions as well. And maybe just maybe we can share some thoughts on the seemingly universally beloved Paddington 2. It's time somebody beats up on that bear. Oh, yeah. You're the guy to do it. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. All right. Take a moment right now at the end of the show. Please give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It won't take too much of your time, and it really does help us reach new listeners. Our music this week is by Sufjan Stevens, including his single Tanya Harding. I would argue an even more empathetic exercise in considering Tanya Harding than (laughs) I, Tanya. More information is at sufjohnstevens.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. I don't want to say you're predictable, Josh, because... Sometimes you surprise me, but I had your review, or at least your rating, which is all I know of I, Tanya pegged weeks ago. That I'd be mixed? Yeah, I knew it just wouldn't I wasn't going to go out. Well, what, would you, what did you rate it? Did you ever end up giving it yeah, a... Yeah, I did. I had it at three and a half, and actually it'd be okay. close to four for me. I'm okay. a fan of it. It's in my top 20, or at least top 25 of the year. It was certainly fun. Uh, there was a lot of stuff I liked about it. It was an enjoyable watch. I just, I, I think I was partly reacting to coming to it after what was it? Golden Globe stuff. So somewhere I was seeing, you know, was Harding at the Golden Globes? Is that part of it? I kind of yeah. half watched those. I was doing something else and it was on in the other room. Um, and, and just hearing about this, hearing about it being categorized as this, you know, this huge bid, redemption re- this or... redemption story of her reclaiming her. And and I think it it is effective in doing that, but mostly because of Margot Robbie's performance. She's yeah. phenomenal. She's great. That scene in front of the mirror is fantastic. And, I wish the movie had just trusted the performance a little more, and that's probably not possible because it's conceived way before Robbie was even cast, but they had enough in her performance to do what the movie wants to do is kind of take this story. Well, I think it wants to take this story out of the tabloid realm, Yeah, sort of, because 
my experience of it was that it's really having as much fun with mm-hmm. this story as the hard copy reporters sure. and all these other things that it kind of wags its finger at. Mm-hmm. It's really doing the same thing. Yeah. It's just it's having it's its trans- cake and eating it too. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. It's transferring all that anger and derision that was put on Harding. It's just transferring it to other people. So like the Galuli's friend. You know, who's, I guess, is the idiotic mastermind behind (laughs) this. He is, you know, just portrayed as a buffoon. Harding's mother, Alison Janney, is like delicious, but it's also for a project that wants to be a bid for empathy. It's way too easy to hate her. Mm. So I didn't see it as like... I guess I was expecting it to be fully empathetic, and it it is when it comes to Harding, but then it wants to be essentially hard copy yeah. for a couple of the other characters. So that, that was my only reservation. Yeah, but, no, yeah, I still think valid. it's good. I and mean, I'm positive on it. And that's why, as I said during our Top 10 show, for me, it got a little heavy-handed when it's then finger-wagging at us, the audience, right. saying, yeah. You're, you enjoyed all of this a little bit too much. When and that the movie came also up, wants I, to have I a lot of fun with this stuff. That. But I like the perspective of it. I like the perspective in the sense that it recognized that if we're going to try to tell this story, we only know this character. The movie makes it very clear. And they're right. We only know this character from our perception of these actions, the tabloids, the media coverage. We really have no idea. And I don't know that the movie really sets out to exactly reclaim who she really is. I don't think the movie knows. I don't think any of us can know, certainly not based on these interviews that were the foundation of this. It's 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 an elusive, enigmatic kind of truth. And the movie says... I'm at least going to to make that very clear. I'm going to break the fourth wall. I'm going to do some of those things rather than try to trick you the way conventional biopics do. Yeah. And and it's you certainly have a fuller understanding of at least some of the details of her life and and can look at Harding from a mm-hmm. different vantage point, which I think is is, you know, a worthy project. Yeah. So it, it wasn't anything in my uh brief comments about circus musical that prompted you to see it. Why did you see it? Well, It's funny because we were in this exact place last week and I think you said something like Sophie with all of her interest in musicals had hasn't brought this up yet. Hasn't made you take her to Circus Musical. And like two days later, she's like, Daddy, can we go see The Greatest Showman this weekend? We got to go see it. And actually, Quinn wanted to go see it, too. So that was great. I was going to take both of them. But then Quinn ended up going to a friend's house earlier that day and he saw the movie with his friend and Loved it. Nine out of ten stars. All right. Is what, is what Quinn gave it. But Sophie Which, and I... Is that his average? That's Yeah, it probably is. Okay. Sophie and I then went to see it on our own. And we came out in about the same place on it. I, I, I maybe like it a little bit more than you. I don't know. It's it's fine. It's better than yeah. I thought it would be. I mean, after <laughs> knowing it it's, it's been largely trashed, there are things about it you yes. want to reclaim. Yes. Right? Because it has a good heart. It Jackman... Does is giving it his all he is he is certainly the music it's the dear evan hansen people i love that music i think some of the songs are really good some of the songs are not but they are the types of songs that you find yourself whether you want to or not singing for the next two or three days i've woken up every day this week with, really yeah i have i, I didn't and it's find not even my favorite tunes catchy. i've been singing like just the greatest show the opening number in my head and i'm not even that big of a fan of it's it. It's happened but. to me since we listened to the soundtrack in the car a few days oh, after sure. seeing the movie. Then, then they do start to sink. Yeah, in there a are bit. some earworms. Not exactly there. my my style of music overall, but there is something just really flimsy about it, for lack of a better word. It just it just doesn't really all hold together, and it tries to make some points that I don't think it it does very well, including this idea. It kind of explores where Barnum Circus being all about fakery and not real. 
And so then he's out there searching for something real while at the same time it also sold us. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, it sold us on the whole idea that he's actually going out and finding authentic people who are themselves. It's it's very contradictory in some of those narratively and thematically very confused. That's it. But I know you said this on Letterboxd. I saw it after I saw this movie, and I'm with you that the best number in the movie by far is that Zendaya, Zac Efron one. That's, yeah, they're great. That's the most inspired. They're they're both really good in it, but the choreography of that, mm-hmm. uh, the trapeze, and just the the choreography of the the dancing itself is the most skilled, the most intricate. I guess is the word I'm looking for, I think, of any of the numbers in there. And it's really one of the only ones that actually employs the fact that there's a circus involved, right? I mean, I know there are a couple of other numbers in the circle and like in the big top, but it's really just it could be any other stage. Mm-hmm. Essentially, this one, you know, with the trapeze and it, it actually recognizes that there are things about the circus we can use. I, it's just astounding to me that the rest of the movie doesn't do more. of Yeah, that. not much. I do think the bar scene, too, where he that's not bad convinces Efron to yeah. join the circus is also really good some of the dancing there rebecca ferguson how about her didn't even know it was her until afterwards i I looked it up immediately after the movie it was the first thing i did i couldn't believe she's playing what's her name lind something jenny yeah jenny lind this opera singer and i was disappointed though not totally surprised because i didn't really believe it i couldn't believe that rebecca ferguson is just generally so stunning and such a good actress that then she could also sing that well. Yeah. Not, not her, her singing. She's so it is singing. Michelle Williams, right? It is Michelle yes. Williams, who I think mostly gets wasted. You talk about oh. the, the narrative confusion. She gets lost. Incredibly. In a lot of this. But Rebecca Ferguson, just watching her, of course, it's about the camera. It's how the camera perceives her for us as the audience the same way the audience and especially Hugh Jackman's character is perceiving her. But She's a goddess. She's as much of a goddess as anyone I've ever seen in a movie. I mean, it's just amazing how she holds the camera in those close-ups. And I, I was kind of hoping that she was that good of a singer, too, because then that would just take her to this this other level. But I, I do think she's really good. And I want to say it was Tasha Robinson who tweeted something about this. And, and you know, this is all stuff that you can't worry about too much when it comes to biopics. But it ties into the sort of whitewashing of the Barnum mm. character that the Lynn character is really misportrayed here and that the actual woman uh, supposedly left working with him because she didn't like his unscrupulous business practices. Okay. It wasn't it wasn't at all like she is the bad guy as she right. is depicted in because this movie. Because he didn't love her. All to like, yeah, to be there to like be one other unconvincing reason why he's such a holy man mm-hmm. <laughs> you know yeah and that just goes back to the narrative stuff well this is this is why you don't read those articles film spotting is listener supported join the film spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes monthly bonus shows our weekly newsletter and for the first time all in one place the entire film spotting archive going back to 2005 that's at filmspottingfamily.com